Hi everyone, thanks for coming down this evening. Um, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the Boon Wurrung people, the traditional owners of the land on which we're gathered and pay my respects to their elders, both um, past and present. My name is Rachel Elliott-Jones and I am the outgoing creative producer of Assemble Papers. Um, in case you don't already know what Assemble Papers is, we're a weekly online and biannual print publication about small footprint living covering art, design, architecture, the environment, urbanism, and financial affairs. We're proud to partner with M Pavilion every year, presenting a special edition of the publication to coincide with the opening and contributing to the events program. So if you haven't got your hands on our latest edition yet, then you can pick up a copy tonight. Um, a key theme of the M Pavilion program this year is the intersection of design and science. And we were invited to present a series of events with this in mind. In particular, this event continues the conversation from a talk on the science of space we presented with the Flurry Institute of Neuroscience last year. Um, and this time we're approaching it through the lens of virtual reality. We're proud to have co-conspired on this event with um, the team at the Flurry Institute and also a team from Melbourne School of Design. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce our moderator today, um, Rose Hiscock, the inaugural director of Science Gallery Melbourne, a new gallery dedicated to the collision of art and science. Um, it's part of the acclaimed international network with eight nodes worldwide. Um, the gallery will be embedded into the University of Melbourne and is scheduled to open in 2020. Um, Rose was previously director of the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney, where she led the organisation through significant reform and audience growth. I'll now hand over to Rose to introduce our wonderful speakers. Thank you. Great. <coughs> Thanks. Thanks, uh, Rachel, and thank you everyone for coming out uh, tonight. I'll introduce our speakers in a moment. Um, but let me just, what I've decided to do with this session today is to frame it with uh, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. So let's start with Narnia. The land beyond the wardrobe door, a secret place frozen in eternal winter, a magical country waiting to be set free. So folks, you're here to set free Narnia with me. Um, today's conversation follows on from a, a discussion last year uh, where we started exploring, or the team started uh, exploring uh, design, uh, design, architecture and wellbeing. And it's led to a second conversation today around the place of virtual reality in all of those themes. Um, virtual reality is, you know, it's, it's, it's something uh, kind of, of of the moment and uh, clearly of the future. But of course, we've been very interested in alternate universes for a long time. If we go take um, the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, but um, for those of you who are, who are enjoying uh, or have enjoyed Stranger Things, the, the Netflix sister, uh, si uh, series, of course, there's an alternate universe. It's a beautifully framed um, uh, aesthetic, of, but also a portal into the upside down world. So um, the portal, today's portal, and we might, we might talk, talk portals a little bit more in a moment, but today's portal and the, and the portal for our conversation today is uh, virtual reality. And uh, we'll explore some of the technology, but we'll also uh, talk a lot about um, 
what I'm interested in what in, in uh, both what it solves and also the problems that it creates because I think we may be heading into some virtually virtual reality inspired problems as well. So rather than uh, sitting and uh, reading a, a, a bio of each of our uh, panelists, I'm going to um, throw them each a question and in doing that also ask ask them to introduce themselves a little and uh, 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 tell us about the, themselves. So, but just to let you know who's on our panel, we have Professor Julie Bernhard from uh, the Flora Institute. We have Marcus White, who's a, a architect and a senior lecturer in design at the Melbourne School of Design. And we have Joel Zika, who's a lecturer in screen and design at Deakin University. And his area of endeavour is deeply, deeply fascinating. More on that in a moment. All right. So let's start with the brain. And, and so I want to build some building blocks here. I want to talk the brain about the brain, the technology, and then the aesthetics. So Julie, I'm going to throw you a potentially easy, potentially not uh, question. Can you explain VR and why our brain believes that it's real? Uh, mm, that is a really good question. Uh, I think I'll say that uh, if we think about just simple things, like uh, the cochlear implant. Now, that's not simple in how it was developed. It's the most amazing piece of technology. Uh, but what we see with, for, from people who were profoundly deaf to people who are then implanted with uh, a cochlear implant is that they can hear, they can integrate and hear. Um, and that is almost instantaneous. Uh, there's other examples where we can put on prism glasses and within a very short space of time we adapt to this very weird visual space that's being engendered by the prisms to be able to actually work out the world. So I think the answer is that our brains are actually incredibly clever and we are built to be able to adapt to things very rapidly. And virtual reality is especially immersive, is actually very similar to the real world. And within the constraints of the weird bits that happen when you go into an immersive um, space, it's not that hard for us, for most people, I'll, I'll put the caveat and say for most people, uh, because part of the issue for me at the brain level is that once you give this to people who don't have a brain injury and even then for people who do have a brain injury, which is what I'm deeply interested in, uh, you start to see that not everyone can cope with virtual reality. So thank you for that. So pass that test. So we're going to be throwing a curly one to each of the panellists. Then they, they were not aware of these questions in advance. Just, you know, why not? Um, but uh, so Julie, just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and, and your uh, area of, of research. Yeah, great. Um, I'm at the Flory, as, as described, and this is an institute of neuroscience and mental health that's up around close to the University of Melbourne and with another campus out near the Austin Hospital. And we have about 600 researchers who are all interested in brain and particularly interested in brain health. So we focus on diseases and my particular area of interest is stroke. Um, and I've worked in that area for about 30 years. So I'm deeply fascinated by uh, what kinds of things can we do to improve recovery after a stroke? And that's been my area of focus. And I work at that 
on a number of different levels. One of them is looking at uh, exercise and physically based interventions and therapies. But because I was a clinician and still consider myself a clinician working in hospitals, I had the epiphany about 10 years ago, um, probably longer, but 10 years ago I just went, we're just thinking about the person and me interacting with them and we're not thinking about the broader environment and its potential impact on recovery and that's when I started to get very interested in this nexus between um, brain recovery and the built environment and that's where we've gone uh, since then and right. the rest will unfold as we Thanks, talk. Julie. Great. Yeah. And, and Julie and Marcus have collaborated so we'll get to that in a moment. So Marcus, I want to know about the technology. Okay, so the smarts. Um, in terms of, um, you know, virtual reality in your practice, uh, is, it going to, is, is it clever enough to revolutionise uh, a, a, a practice that has been, you know, face it, in, on, on, in existence for, for, for a very long period of time? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, we started around the same time as prostitution but um <laughs> i think uh, excellent we've had an epiphany <laughs> in prostitution so far folks let's see what else we can have well i think um if you ask an older practicing architect architects have been using virtual reality for hundreds of years um plans and sections are a kind of virtual reality um they're just a very abstracted form of virtual reality so uh you know it's we were talking before about, um, you know, the brain can, when you stick on the goggles, it's very easy for the brain to imagine that you're in that space. Plans and sections are a bit harder, but with training, um, you know, after a five-year degree, you eventually understand, you know, the spaces by looking at those drawings. And I guess, um, you know, there was a big leap in technology when we started to understand perspective. So, you know, Brunelleschi and the gang started to be able to draw perspective, communicate it, understand it in a very accurate way. And that did change the way um, we thought about design. Um, you know, changed, you know, the, through the Renaissance movement, we started to think about buildings differently. We started to think about cities differently. So, you know, they started carving out boulevards partially to do with you know, a bunch of issues, but one of the reasons was this sort of visual um, composition idea. Um, and so, the, you know, perspective was a big jump, uh, you know, being able to model digitally um, and be able to do perspective uh, models very quickly in the computer, you know, that was a massive leap and that uh, afforded a bunch of opportunities that weren't necessarily there. You could test out, um, you know, what took the Renaissance guys you know, and I've done, so I started just before um, computers were affordable. So I had to do hand-drawn perspective, so it's a pretty painful process. But you can do that very quickly and make changes very quickly, so um, design iterations could happen more quickly, you could get better designs. Um, so this next leap, and I guess it, you know, it's sort of our second go at VR, because it was sort of in the late 90s, it was the next big thing. Um, I think the fact that it was over a hundred grand for the kit and it was mm. really low resolution and pretty awful meant that it didn't happen but um, now it is affordable or at least becoming very affordable and we've mucked around with the uh, the Google Cardboard which you can buy from Taobao or um, 
eBay for five bucks, drop in your existing phone um, and experience VR. And that, I think, um, and being able to use the, that technology in a very affordable way and, and the processes for getting, say, architectural models into that um, environment is becoming easier. Um, it's still reasonably painful, but um, certainly you can do a hemispherical um, render, drop it into your Google Cardboard um, and experience things in a way that, I mean, particularly when we're teaching at university, helping them make that jump between, you know, understanding plans and sections spatially to, um, you know, uh, using this thing to be able to understand what their designs are like. So we've used it in teaching um, where urban design students have designed their plaza. They think it's fantastic. It's going to be beautiful. They stick some people into the model. They do their hemispherical render. They put the goggles on and they go, oh, my God, this is terrible. <laughs> it, it's way yeah. too big. It's, yeah. you know, really horrible. And then, you know, they go back and they redesign it. Mm. Um, so it's speeding up that sort of thing. And I guess, you know, trying to think of what other possibilities, you know, what's, um, you know, what's the equivalent to the Renaissance um, composition of boulevards, um, you know, what will be the Baroque, um, which is, yeah, where it becomes really exciting, I think. You, you work both uh, as a lecturer and in a, in a practice. So I can see how you're using it as a teaching aid. Do you use it in, in your practice? Do you use it? I, th I think um, we, we have a bit. Um, and I guess because of our, we're, we're all um, pretty comfortable with 3D modelling and, you know, our brains already do that part. Um, we haven't been using it much in practice and, and because it has been expensive, but certainly showing clients, we've started using it a bit. Um, and I guess we're sort of trying to work out what what the potential is for, um, I guess, quantifying some of the stuff that's a bit harder to quantify. So, mm. um, I mean, one of the examples from the other day was we had two rooms that are pretty much identical. One's got a very good size window, one's got a tiny window. Um, but other than that, they're identical. And just the response from people, because as an architect, we, we know that a bigger window with a view of vegetation is going to be much better. Um, it's convincing the project managers and the, you know, going through the bureaucracy of, well, why would we, that's going to cost us more because you've got to triple glaze it. And, you know, so there's a lot of resistance to good design. So hopefully, you know, it can be used as a tool and we can provide evidence for making decisions that, you know, an architect might think are you know, good idea, but if you if you don't have some sort of quantifiable evidence to back that up, then it's quite difficult. Yep. Okay, so Joel, you you and I are down the theme park end of this this panel here. You, you I, lo I love a theme. My dad ran Sovereign Hill, right? So I, I I I love a theme park, and and I've always wanted to build a '70s theme park where you turn up, you get a Monaro, you can take your dog, you can light a fire, you don't have to wear a bark helmet. You can, you can, you, you know, don't you, re I reckon it'll go completely Tasmania off. Tasmania for yeah. that, yeah. can't you? Yeah, that's a Tasmania, yeah, thanks. It's called Tasmania. Um, <laughs> don't, don't tweet that, I'll get run out of town, never go, never visit Tasmania again. Anyway, so, so sitting down this theme park, and sorry to, to label, put you in my bucket, um, it all sounds very worthy, the use of virtual reality for, and, and a sort of a, a health benefit and for a, um, a, a public good, a public outcome. 
your 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 work in uh, and and your research is using virtual reality in a in a very different way. And and I'm being flippant. I know in, in saying it may not be worthy because I think there are definitely benefits. But could you tell us a little bit about um, your research? But the question I want to yep. you to also answer is on the whole the um, the, the uh, imagery that's in virtual reality. Rea the reality is often a very crap aesthetic. Um, and that's a broad generalization, but that is what I think. Uh, so in your, tell us about your, your work and the role of aesthetics in, in virtual reality. Okay, thanks. Um, no, 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 I mean, <laughs> I mean that in a nice way. Um, I'm from Tasmania, so I can- <laughs> Right. <laughs> Tops. It is, it is. They do talk about it being the 70s, but. Um, yeah. So the, the, the main focus of my research over the last 10 years has been to um, uncover and explore a history of what what are known as dark rides, ghost trains, haunted house rides, spooky journey, popular in popular entertainment. Um, it comes from a, a, my arts practice with installation. I was looking for examples in history of um, immersive 360 environments. Nothing. Not at the time, nothing to do with VR, but just immersion. You know, what, where, where do ideas about narrative storytelling and immersion, where do they come from? What are some good examples? Especially those that are repeatable through electronics, um, or electrics at least, that can be mediated and built. Um, and I discovered a history of these popular cultural devices that spans back 100 years. And... Um, wrote my masters about it, did a whole bunch of artwork about it, um, tried to analyze the techniques. But as I would journey back to places like the States, I noticed that these sites were beginning to dis disappear. They were relics or they were unappreciated. Um, and so my role over the last couple of years has been to use virtual reality, quote unquote, because it is an amorphous thing and I was already doing it, but no one could afford headsets. But using what we know as virtual reality and photographic virtual reality to capture the insides of these um, sometimes up to 100-year-old spooky popular entertainments using a set of cameras uh, in really, really difficult environments. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm really only halfway through that project and it's a 10-year it's a project of visiting and learning about this history that's, uh, that over the last year I've begun to... Um, put into a, a, a format that has, and I guess um, this is where it all links together, that has allowed people around the world to share the, the data about these spaces, to look at them, to think about the spaces that they remember because there are thousands of these cultural sites that are no longer here, but to remember them and experience them uh, spatially over, over Facebook, over YouTube, um, by sharing images. Um, the aesthetic of the places that I'm visiting and the way I'm capturing them is flawed. It is innately flawed. Um, and so is just about everything in virtual reality at the moment and always has been. I mean, I, I think there are maybe three waves of virtual reality, but it's about spectacle. And that has been the trajectory of, of media and the development and the, the, the collision of technology and media over the last hundred years has, has not necessarily been about the quality, but about the spectacle and the access and those points where there's been major access have been the times where there's been the most experimentation across the most areas, whether it be science, art, and just general cultural investigation. 
Um, and certainly the spaces that I'm recording are um, flawed. They're not perfect, um, but they are places that are going to be forgotten and that have aesthetic uh, links to incredibly popular um, forms of, of mass entertainment like horror films and major fun parks and so people are getting that I think so it's been really successful mm. and and so when you say uh, the aesthetics are flawed you you mean the the, the original um, creation is is not a particularly well constructed so you're taking real photographs of something so that the the original is flawed is that the the I mean the admission of the 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 creators was that they were trying to achieve to Im imitate something in cinema or imitate something in literature, but they were only able to achieve so much. But it, but it was also incredibly meaningful. The way that I'm capturing them is also um, flawed. You know, these are moving objects in the dark, and it's incredibly hard to capture. Um, so there's two sides of that. I'm doing what I can to archive something that people were doing what they can to create. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Does Luna Park still have a, a ghost ride? It does. I look for the. The St Kilderians in the you middle can, there. You can also yeah. write it at thedarkride.com. Yeah. Uh, Darkride.com, there you go. Literally, okay. I, I started at Luna Park. Uh, right. So, um, okay, so so there we go. That, the brain, the technology, the aesthetics. Um, the uh, Julia, back, uh, Julie, back to your work in, in um, stroke victims in particular. Um, you're, you're using uh, real data and... Uh, Using that as a as a, a device for people to recover from stroke using VR. Tell us a little bit about how do you, how does that work? How do you take that data? How do you make make it make it work? Yeah. So I the the VR stuff that I'm directly doing is now looking at the built environment. But I know quite a lot about what's happening out there. And we have a lot to thank gamers for for this now coming into health. Uh, the health arena and they really also uh, started to create really stimulating um, things that people could interact with that we find that patients who are stuck in hospitals um, really enjoy doing. Uh, so, and, and a lot of that advance in that technology and developing games is what is where this has sort of come from. So I've done work with games which are not in VR uh, and it's surprising you have people who are 18 and you have people who are 80 who actually really enjoy interacting with games even in a hospital environment and at the simple level we sort of as therapists um, and people interested in trying to get people going after they've had a brain injury because recovery is all about learning and practice um, on the, on the surface, this looks like a really good thing. People get really motivated, they get very active, um, they engage with the, the game. But what we've failed to do so far is we've failed to translate that into really meaningful outcomes for that individual. So they have moments where they're enjoying themselves, but does it translate into something that is uh, useful, is uh, important for their own recovery? So, And this is where we haven't quite made it. And the same applies to virtual reality. So although I haven't used VR in clinical trials, um, I do have friends and colleagues who have done and where we're getting to with VR in the clinic is uh, equivalence. So you can use a VR system, you can get someone to train within a VR system uh, and they find it stimulating and enjoyable. And the caveat again is that 
Some people cannot use it at all because their brains are damaged and they find the environment uh, too disruptive. Uh, but you can have that group and then you can just do traditional therapies and traditional rehabilitation and they come out the same. So we haven't worked out a superiority for VR, but we certainly have shown that people can have a preference for it, they enjoy it. So at the level of feasibility and enjoyment, it's there. Uh, I think the next step is really to see, so if you thought bigger than that, if you thought about how you fully integrated VR into uh, recovery spaces for people either in hospital or at home, what might that look like? I think mm. that's probably where it's gonna mm. where it's gonna go. And do you get um, in res- in response to the work you're doing in that? You know, one of the issues we we know is that um, exercise is you know the, the more exercise the better. Mm-hmm. There's you know it's related to uh, exercise and dementia uh, and now have a have a relationship or you know obesity. You know it's a very sedentary uh, activity using mm-hmm. virtual reality. Mm-hmm. Do you do you have any pushback around that? The, that part of using VR in health and well-being? Well, I'll get on to the constructed environment in a moment, but just in terms of the patient use. Um, Look, I think uh, Pokemon Go, uh, if I talk about that, which is, again, not VR, but these are all interrelated, uh, that got people out and moving. It was amazing. Even disabled groups of people started working together Mm. to go and Mm. play Pokemon. It tells us that... uh, People like doing things like that. And the makers of that game, of course, had people outdoors, and that was pretty cool. Um, And, in fact, there was one that was made for indoors for um, hospital and rehabilitation environments, which I thought was really interesting. Um, So I I think um, what... Yeah, the, the issue is still that we've just got to work out how we, you know, make that next that next connection. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I just have to throw in here, so we, I'm doing a little plug for the Science Gallery, which is the gallery that I'm the director for, and we're doing a pop-up program around blood uh, mm-hmm. this coming year, and we found, this is not not quite VR, but we were looking at, at references for blood in sport and found these this company in Canada that were using a, um, it, it, they, they developed a program to encourage people to donate blood to uh, blood banks. So you'd go into a blood bank, this is their concept, get, um, you know, wired up, to, to have your blood, um, you know, taken through, through a needle into a bag, and then you'd have a console. And every time you got shot, uh, by a you know shoot 'em up thing, a, more blood to be taken out from you, and these guys literally <laughs> did it. I'm just throw it away. Literally did this as a as a, a you can Google it. These nutters and the blood thing, and this guy sort of ends up sort of partially fainting, <laughs> and, then, and then being removed. But it is quite you know it's very physical. And it's awesome. I know it's, it's quite very physical. real. It's yeah. very real. So that might yeah. to end on that <laughs> yes. your point about you can be quite physical in the game. Right. It just depends on how mobile people are um, and and what the nature of the stimulation is. Yeah. I think the two two quick things to say as well, it's other purposes or it's other uses that are emerging now are in training for um, all kinds of things, but certainly in medicine it's being used a lot more for uh, learning and, and sort of putting yourself into the environment 
environment and also it's being used for education purposes so people are developing VR uh, so that you can go into a body and you can learn about the body mm. or you can go into your own brain for example in stroke yes. and you can take a journey <coughs> through your brain to see whether you've had a stroke and then you can take a journey elsewhere to learn more about the system um, you know, people are, are sort yeah. of playing with yeah, it, yeah. see where you, it's going to yeah. go. You would know John McGee's work at University of New South Wales, so we'll be yeah. showing some of this in our um, our program next year. So you're you're well, leaping in. Go well, for I it. was just thinking go. of Rick and Morty, but um, yeah. you know, there's that episode where they go into the body and it's yeah. yeah. So so <laughs> now. But the, the other thing yes. is um, the exercise thing. They're, they're developing special treadmill things that are go in every direction, and but also as well, a nerd that's had a go with the lightsaber, waving that around for half hour is pretty good okay. exercise okay. for for some people at least. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um, all right. So now you guys are teaming up in terms of your uh, work and your practice together to use you know VR technology uh, in terms of design and designing buildings that are healthy and and foster well-being. Perhaps, uh, Marcus, just talk a little bit about why you're working together and where that came from and is it working? Well, I, I guess, um, I mean, I've been interested in how we can use technology to do better design for quite a while and um, and I think I've had, uh, I mean, you know, in terms of research, um, my research is design research, but not so much des research about design, it's research for design to, you know, do better design and then testing it through the design process or research by design. Um, and so I guess I've been interested in, you know, how can we use this emerging technology or developing technology to, you know, do this process better. Um, so uh, I, I've been working on a, a way of using, well, the same sort of modelling technology, um, sort of entertainment industry technology to do uh, measure the quality of view from within apartments and um, hospitals um, and it's I mean the the method is using neon lighting special effects um, where you kind of make the where you make the sky a, a kind of big globe of light and you can then measure how much lights hitting a, a window and then measure um, well, how much sky you can see um, you turn the tree objects into neon light light sources you can measure how much vegetation you can see you can measure how much you know if in terms of real estate sales how much water you can see um, and so I've been interested in this sort of um, area and then um, I think we I went, went along to a what's the event optimizing called? health environments I, was, I went Feb along 20 to a, if you want to come the fantastic sort of mix of um, cross-disciplinary presentations um, and we started talking about uh, you know, design processes and how, um, you know, rehab facilities could be improved and, you know, being able to test out lots of different scenarios. Um, and I think the initial discussion was about making physical cardboard models and we thought maybe, you know, this is an opportunity to do VR because it's very, well, it's a lot quicker. Um, you can test out a lot more um, scenarios, you know. It's very quick to change the colour of a the paint of the walls open up a you know drop in a different background to test out you know the response to different views um, you know test out you know what it's like to have multiple beds in the one room um, this sort of stuff that you know we can test out lots and lots of scenarios quickly 
um, and we can get responses from you know, humans. Mm. Um, you know, what, is it, what does it feel like? Which, you know, the VR is so much, um, because it's easier for the brain to put those things together, you can test it on, you know, normal humans, not just architects, um, <laughs> and get a response and an understanding of the space, which, you know, you, architects, we've struggled with plans and sections and mm. perspective drawings and, and not, you know, you get a client that when they see their building, they're a bit surprised at some elements and, and the VR thing, you take away that. Um, and so I think, I mean, it's early days in this process and we're, we're trying to work out, you know, what, what the best way to do the um, research is. Um, and I think, uh, but, you know, our initial little test we did a couple of weeks ago was really um, quite successful. Um, we certainly got a lot of data from it. Um, I don't completely understand Exhibit the graphs. Exhibit A. <laughs> Exhibit A. Just explain what you did and what, what the maps are doing. Yeah. So and we could send them out into the world, can we no, not? So we, we'll this out. was um, uh, uh, something that we did um, a couple of weekends ago here at M Pavilion where we asked the public to get into VR um, goggles and have a look at... Um, a couple of different scenarios. We had four comparisons. Now, um, this is data. Yeah, I'm a scientist. Um, but what we've got, I'll sh just show you this top one. This is called a spider plot, thanks to Ruby, who's over there. Um, this is a consulting room without a window, and this is a consulting room with a window. So the green is without a window, and the pink is with a window. Now, we asked the public to have a look at those two scenarios, otherwise the rooms are identical. And we, then we asked them to rate their response to that environment after they'd done the viewing. So what we have over here is the green. So this is the no window scenario, right? Without a view, sad, lethargic, distressed. So you can see this is where people's view, people feel over here from just being in that virtual environment, which is, because it's a real environment, is quite, um, is quite good. And then over this side, we've got calm, contented and happy. Now, the issue for us as researchers and architects, and here's my pitch to you all, who likes being in hospital? Right. <laughs> the more things good. You are a bit strange. Here's one. Um, hospitals cost millions and millions of dollars to build. If they cost that much and it's our money that's being used uh, to create a hospital, Shouldn't we be trying to create hospitals that promote recovery and wellness? And shouldn't we be using evidence to help guide that process? So there is a field of evidence-based design. Um, our challenge is that it's complex. You know, these are very big buildings. Um, there's a lot of elements to them. There's a lot of users in them. There's patients as well as family. There's um, staff members, you know, who are delivering the care. And so within that complex system, we wanted to come up with a way of sort of throwing it up in the air and instead of just doing the same when we design, actually get a group of people together to co-design something that could be innovative and uh, really break the mould. So that was the, that's our objective. So the novel project, which actually stands for New and Optimised Virtual Environment Living Lab, 
because we're using the VR to help stimulate and show people what the options are. So in brief, the idea is that we will have a um, co-design process where we invite people who are the the people that need to be the users of this space into our research project. And then through um, getting people to be bold and think about how we redesign hospitals, we'll then use VR to render these different scenarios. And then we use science like this, which is just simple decision, um, to look at what the preferences are of individuals and to really get to, the, to grips with getting some good science. Mm. And if we can, we'll also latch on some actual data that comes from individuals as they are immersed in the environments to get a physiological response, which we couldn't do <coughs> at the workshop because it's hard to do in this kind of environment. Um, but that's certainly an objective. So uh, the goal is to use the technology and this co-design process to just have a rethink and see if we can do a much better job. Um, is, is this happening around the world? Is this a trend that we're following on? Can you point to examples even in, um, in other sectors where this uh, kind of approach is, is influencing design and, and, and it, will it um, uh, result in a radical change to, to design? I think um, there are different views about how much of architecture can be studied and get evidence for, like there is in medicine. You know, in medicine we can get ev so much evidence for something and then the rest is art. That's the reality. Um, so, th but there are people who are following the same kind of um, idea. No one who's working in our space. And the virtual reality stuff is quite new still. Using mm. VR as a tool for interrogating um, the built environment is still pretty new. Yep. So we're, we're out there. Um, Joel, I'm going to throw it back to you because part of your research is also working in that there is a nostalgia and memory aspect to your work, not just a, a straight out documentation. Are, are you getting, are you receiving a response from your work uh, around triggering memory or triggering the, you know, a, a very personal and emotional reaction? Yeah, there's, there's a, there are some overlaps in, um, in most of the places that VR is being used is about documenting not just the physical space, but something about what it means. And because I'd noticed there was a lot of loss, there were people who were like, oh, we used to have a, we used to have a, a, a amusement park down the road. It used to have a ghost train. I'll show you the pictures of the amusement park. Oh, no, there are no pictures inside the ghost train, obviously, you know. Um, and sort of hipsters obsess about abandoned amusement parks, but no one goes to the trouble of actually trying to document the experience. Although, the minute you do, and I think that what I've managed to do is not so much create a beautiful digital archive, but uh, a network of people who are constantly bombarding me with anecdotes and um, reminiscing about parks near them. They're like, could you go to this place? I'm like, that park is gone. Sorry, you know, I used to live here, or I used to live there. But what it tells you about popular culture in the States, in, in Australia, is that the politics of heritage don't really cover popular entertainment. Mm. I, I wrote to the mm. Smithsonian, I said, look, this is the deal, you know, these, there were thousands of these sites all across America, every little town had an amusement park and every amusement park had a ghost train and most of the ghost trains were made by local people or at least maintained by the local people and there are photographs of all the roller coasters and all the Ferris wheels but there are no photographs inside the ghost train. The ghost train's more important now because in so many ways it's a, it's a built environment, it's a 360 architectural space so I've talked to 
architecture to architecture people I've talked to heritage you know people so they were like well that we that's great lovely lovely project but no we don't need it because we only we only we're only interested in archiving um, uh, the, the raw data so we're, we're interested in photographs of these spaces but we're not interested in your artwork and I'm like just to be clear I'm talking about archiving spaces that exist you know um, so you know we don't know what I don't know what the arcade that I used to go to as a kid looks like, but I'd be interested, but I never will. There's no panoramic photograph of it. There are some photographs of drive-ins, but there aren't a lot. And there aren't any panoramic images inside Ghost Trains, despite the fact that so much of what we're designing in VR now is based on our memories of being in weird, strange media spaces, whether it be a cinema or an interesting building, there's just a there's a missing kind of level of fantasy there, and and people are yeah are reacting to it, and they're saying, well, that's that's what I thought about when I built this or that. And what's interesting in the United States is that, like over Halloween, um, one in four people visit a contemporary haunted amusement, and that community is huge. It's a billion dollar industry, but the actual history of it is kind of gone. It's really interesting. I've become. Uh, obsessed. This is a segue, vaguely, and um, with uh, you remember late last year the son of Malcolm McLaren uh, and Vivian Westwood uh, in a protest to the forty years of punk, which had turned into sort of a um, a celebration of punk. Uh, chose to burn his entire. It was estimated like four million dollars of punk yes. memorabilia. He decided to burn it. And uh, as a museum director, I, I I think that's spectacular. I love that he burnt that collection in the spirit of punk. And so sort of to your research, it kind of for me raises questions about well, what was meant to last and how and what should be digitised and what should be collected. It's a, it's a very, very rich... You're spot on. Yeah, you're spot yeah. on. There's, yeah. I've, I've, I've been, you know, people will end a, a, a question by going, but maybe you were never supposed to record it. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean... <laughs> You know, I've I've met with people and they've said, you know, I'm I'm you know I met I wanted to you know I took my my I met my partner we first wrote on these sites the the things that are injected yeah. into these um, sites that that have done for a hundred years is that it was a chance for people to 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 become intimate with other people in the dark, whether that means wow. just being next to someone or getting it on, um, and so to remove that. Uh, yeah, no, and again, there's obvious biblical and sort of um, theological kind of overlap in a ghost train, a journey to hell, but yeah, and so maybe it is sacrilegious to record it for anybody else, um, but uh, the discussion is yeah, yeah. fascinating. Is it a bit like turning the light on in the nightclub that shouldn't go on? Well, no, no, no. So <laughs> I don't, so I have footage of, I have footage of all of these rides with the lights on, oh, yeah. and that is... Um, that is sacrilege. I won't put it out there. Right. So this is all about recording as close to it. And we have the technology now. So I, most of what I'm interested in is, and have developed is optical, you know, so certain cameras, certain light conditions, um, you know, that it's a particular project. It's not a, it's not a guy with a GoPro. Like, it's yeah, hard work. Yeah. And that's because of this issue of, like, not wanting to record the mechanics, the bare mechanics. So I'll study it later, and I've got my own, you know, lights on recording. But it's, it's, yeah, it's not for. That's not fair. That's yeah, for. That's yeah, secret stuff. Great. Yeah. All right. I've just. I have noticed the time, so I, we'll we'll throw it open to a few questions. I've just looking at Rita there. Um, I'm sorry to do this to you. 
you know, knowing that you have a, have a, a strong tech background and, and a, know about gear, um, can you talk a little bit about HoloLens in particular and, you know, where, where te- or where technology's going? Where, you know, because as we've talked, I don't know whether you guys, but, I, you know, I'm thinking the goggles, the VR goggles, you know, where, where are we heading? Oh, and is there a microphone we can get to read? Rita Arrigo? Yeah. Thanks, Rose. My name's Rita. I actually work for Microsoft. I'm a digital advisor there, but I've managed can to experience... Can we have experience. a grant? Sorry? Yeah. Can we, can we have one too? We, yeah. yeah, yeah. Talk yeah, to me later. Sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> but what's, what's really interesting about delving into the world of augmented reality is that you can start to imagine this world where screens don't exist anymore and that everything's given to you by... Um, holographic images and it's just so much more exciting than looking at your iPhone. So, so yeah. um, the, holo, the, the HoloLens does open that new world up and it opens it up for architecture, it opens it up for medicine, it opens it up for education. I don't know about um, ghost trains though, <laughs> but maybe one day. Yeah. But um, it does have this element of being able to be a platform as well. So a lot of the architectural drawings are really easy to import into the HoloLens and you can be wearing it and be able to um, walk through a specific uh, environment or you can put it on someone and they can also walk through that environment Mm -hmm. but they can also be in a space at the same time So Mm -hmm. because it's augmented as well as not not necessarily just virtual. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's a whole new world and there's a lot of experimentation going on in that space at the moment Um, and some of the areas that I think are really exciting are in education in particular and some of the learning because I mean we're a very distracted society so all of a sudden you've got something on and you're you're concentrating and mm. and people are finding at Deakin for example that they're finding that you know people can learn medicine a lot faster because they have this ability to have augmented reality and they can really get things much faster yeah. so that's the kind of future I'm seeing where you have an augmented world and also an additional layer of AI which is this whole world of artificial intelligence that's also emerging, which I'm sure you guys have got your heads around as well. Yeah, there's, an issue, there's an issue of, um, of intimacy but also pace. Like once you get someone to put something on your head, you can, you can ask them questions, you can, you can receive data because they've got, to te- they've got to sort of tear it off, I find. You know, like, so I know people who are recording, you know, e- uh, what are we talking about? The, you know, brain data as people are getting scared, but also just anything. You've got this intimacy. You can tell them a story. You can take them somewhere they don't want to go and see how they react. Mm. Um, but I think the, I mean, what I'm because I'm I'm sort of torn about the augmented reality and the VR because as an architect, you can sort of imagine, well, you know, designing spaces maybe becomes less important. You know, making them beautiful spaces because. You're going to stick your goggles on and, you know, when I go to work, I'm not going to be in Melbourne Uni in my office. I'm going to be on the beach. <laughs> I'm going to have a really big screen that's, like, you know, really enormous. And, and, and so, yeah, it, I think it, it's, it's an interesting possibility where, you know, things will be augmented. You know, when I walk down Swanson Street, it might be Paris or... Um, but then... Yeah, so w- whether that's potentially problematic, and I can imagine my wife sticking her goggles on and being with someone a lot more handsome. You know, there's <laughs> some pretty strange stuff that could be coming. Um, 
great. Um, <laughs> Thank God there are still universities in the future. That's yeah. all I can say. Yeah. <laughs> it's spectacular. And uh, I, you, you're all nude as far as I'm concerned looking out here from with my augmented reality glasses. Is There's a question at the back there. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Just, just a, um, in offering a slight counterpoint to the um, utopian version, um, is it possible to kind of consider, like, and it's very interesting to hear the, the brain injury angle on this. I'm just, just to, this is just being provocative, but is it possible that, you know, VR is a effectively acquired brain damage? Like, it's actually, you know, Marsha McLuhan spoke of, of how technology effectively amputates the human is it possible that what we're actually uh, entering into is is a, is a simulation of individuation? Everyone can feel like they're being different, but you know, it's get this sneaking suspicion that we're all being very much the same, and that uh, that it is maybe a, a very slow motion ghost train wreck that we're actually all <laughs> Thanks part for including of. everything. <laughs> Anyone want to have a, a crack at that one? I think that's a really, you know, that's a really interesting question. And I th the, the reality for us now, so that's sort of a word of caution, I guess. The, the reality for us now is that uh, the technology's tricky, even with gaming. Uh, people only are on it for a short period of time. So it really is just like a journey off, a little holiday at the moment. That's all it is. And whether it will ever be something that we immerse ourselves in for the entire day to to sort of see how we can interact, I, I just don't know whether that will that would ever happen. But, you know, it's an interesting thought. And one of the things that came, and again, with some of the uh, gaming work that I did with some people with brain injury, is uh, it was surprising to see at the end of a half an hour session where people were so engrossed, and this is what we see with technology, that we get really engrossed. Um, and in the gaming world, they call this the stickiness of, of certain t technologies and, and games. Um, but we had people who would spend so they've all had a stroke so they've got a, a hole in their brain um, of varying sizes disability of varying levels and they were like this you know playing they were just so intensely focused and what we hadn't expected at the end of this was that um, people would stop and go I am exhausted so there's a, there is a word of caution even in that because um, it creates such an amazing attentional focus that it's actually really hard to cope with for some people with brain injury. And we seem to, as, as healthy people, we seem to be able to do it and then move on and we don't have that same effect of being exhausted. So I think we'll always have to look at what the broader effects are of interacting with technology. Yeah, and there's a bunch of good sci-fi to check out. You know, um, Existence is quite good, Cronberg. They, they, yeah, Black Mirror. It's mm. there's lots of that that you can check. It's fantastic. To what extent does the science fiction, um, you know, it is part of the engineering, the social engineering that enables us? It's almost a a, a form of inoculation against rejection of this technological. You know, um, invasion into our into our kind of like you know existence, existence. You know, it's a uh, and I, you know there is there's a vast amount of it, but it's actually if you go back far enough, it's actually probably precedes a lot of the scientific possibilities, a lot of the 
the kind of the idea of uh, Fabian socialism, H.G. Wells, like mm-hmm. you write about the uh, the things that um, that then you know the scientists can actually uh, aspire to or collectively work towards. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like as a as a social engineering mm-hmm. technique. Yeah. But uh, but I guess the other question would be in the other direction, like. Did we, is it the capacity to talk? It might be a virus that we've all kind of got that actually we're, maybe we were never individuals to start with. Well, and are we even here? Um, you know, the, uh, we're inside uh, a simulation yeah, yeah, right. right now. <laughs> it's all going very well, folks. Uh, is, it, is it similar? To, I saw an ad for like um, you, can get, you can get a print, you can get a beautiful photographic print on your splashback in your kitchen. And now you can get an LED screen with like stuff in your splashback in your kitchen. So if people don't people don't want people don't want that. <laughs> so people aren't going to spend all day in VR. Like people don't want a giant feature wall of like Hawaii. You, the only ones that the only cafes that have a giant print on the wall are like an ironic Canadian landscape or something. So we're not going to spend all day in VR. We're fine. Like like well we are. I don't know about my uncle who loves digital picture frames, but like <laughs> you know he won't be around. Well, he, he might be. He <laughs> might <laughs> be in virtual reality, my <laughs> uncle, with virtual, um, virtual feature frames. Um, we are just about out of time. Uh, is there a final question? Or will we... I, I wonder... Is there one? Yeah, at the back. Hi. I was just wondering about how you go about testing things like texture within a built environment when using virtual reality. So if the experience is very tactile, does that sort of create a barrier for research or have you found ways around that? As in, I like feeling the texture of... Feeling the texture or the difference of like walking on grass or a paved pathway or different aspects like that? Yeah, I don't don't know if... We haven't quite got that far. I think, you know, we're... At the moment, it's getting the bitmap textures to render (laughs) in a a way that's not um, laggy. But I I, I guess... You're not going to get that stuff sticking on the goggles. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there was talk of introducing some sort of smell thing, which I mean, we were joking about um, the. You can go into Google Earth VR, and you can be in Venice, and really, it's sort of like being in Venice. You just need someone to wave um, you know, a bit of sewage underneath <laughs> your nose and and some really nice coffee, and you you know that would that would work. But um. <laughs> But in terms of touching textures, that's a good question and I'm not sure um, how you do that. I did a very funky thing in a museum in Madrid not so long ago where I was sitting opposite a guy, both wearing um, VR headsets, and they swapped our hands. And so I was, you know, gesturing with his hands and he with mine. And then we touched each other and I was touching him with his hands. And, And then they took it off and it was... Just it was the most disorienting thing po- possible because here I am with this sort of fellow and we're doing this to each other at, who I didn't know. Plus I then had to revert it back to my own hands being me. Quite quite extraordinary sort of discombobulation. But yeah, look, we 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 will have to end. I'm going to end us with um, uh, C.S. Lewis to bring us all back to reality. And this is Lucy coming back through the wardrobe after her first uh, experience out. So. Lucy then ran towards the far-off patch of daylight as quickly as her legs would carry her, and presently, instead of rough branches brushing past her, she felt coats. 
and instead of crunching snow under her feet, she felt wooden boards, and all at once she found herself jumping out of the wardrobe into the empty room from which the whole adventure had started. So folks, we're back in the empty room where this whole adventure started. Thank you. Thank you so much for um, that amazing conversation that seemed to cover a lot of ground. At the same time, I think we need to come back next year and keep talking about it. Um, thanks, Joel and Rose and Marcus and Julie. I also want to say thank you to Ruby from The Flurry who worked on this event with us and um, my colleagues Sarah and Anita from Assemble Papers and to Jesse French for inviting us to be part of this M Pavilion program. And thank you all um, for coming tonight. Um, can I get another round of applause for our speakers, please? <laughs>